0: FaithFit Radio and the Diocese of Orlando presents Burning Hearts with Father Patrick O'Dottery A program that is seeking to lead young adults to Christ and to enkindle a deeper faith that is fully alive Now, here is your host Welcome to Burning Hearts, a Bible study for atheists, agnostics, unbelievers, for people of all faiths and for people of no faith. My name is Patrick J. O'Doherty. I'm a priest and a recovering sinner. I'm also the pastor by the grace of God of Queen of Peace Catholic Church on State Road 200. Now you know from previous broadcasts um, I grew up in Southern Ireland and I was very very blessed because One of the great teachers of my life was my mother, and she taught me in very simple ways. Let me give you an example. Um, Oh, I was six or seven or so at the time, and one of the lessons she taught me was we were looking out the window of our home, uh, looking out onto the main street, and across the street was a man standing, and I had known this man for as long as I had been, capable of knowing somebody he was a resident of the town but one of the remarks that my mother made was do you see that man and I said yes I do mother and she said he's dead but he won't lie down and it continues to bear fruit there are people who walk around and they're dead but they just won't lie down some people die when they're 16 but they're buried when they're 80 You've seen them, I think, yourself. Now, um, another lesson she taught me that has left a profound influence on my life was one day she said to me, everything we have as Catholics comes to us from the Jews. This would have been like in early 1950. And I'm, I'm so grateful for this profound and awesome message. It has become more and more clear to me that our way of dividing our Bible into the Old and New Testament is terribly wrong, because the Bible is one continuous unit. We must learn again and again to take the whole Bible seriously. Now. I have done this myself. I have divided it into the Old Testament and the New Testament. Even on this uh, broadcast, I've done that. And I've said things to you like the Old Testament (coughs) governs God's relationship with the Jewish people. And the New Testament uh, governs God's relationship with the whole world through Christ, who was a first century Jew. But I'm doing an unfortunate thing. I really should refer to the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures. And for me, both of them are sacred books. The truth of the matter is Christianity is Jewish and anti-Semitism is unchristian. And refusing or neglecting to share with our Jewish brothers and sisters the teachings and the message of Jesus is also uh, anti-Semitic. Edith Schaeffer, wife of the late Francis Schaeffer, wrote a book with the title, Christianity is Jewish. Her point, and mine too, is that Christianity, no matter how un-Jewish some of its current forms of expression may be, has its roots in Judaism and in the Jewish people. If you look at a tree, for instance, the most sacred part of the tree, if you like, is underground, the root system. And without it, uh, there's no tree. Judaism uh, is the root of the Christian tree. The facts are simply not a matter of debate. For years, all the disciples of Jesus were Jewish. The New Testament was entirely written by Jews, and the only exception might be uh, Saint Luke, but he, in all likelihood, was a convert to Judaism. The very concept of a Messiah, is completely and totally Jewish. Jesus himself was Jewish. Mary was a Jewess. Jesus said of himself, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came not to destroy them but to fulfill them. And no place did Jesus cease to be a Jew. It was Jews who brought the Gospel to the Gentiles. Paul, the chief missionary to the tiles was an observant jew all his life indeed the main issue in the early church was whether without undergoing complete conversion to judaism a gentile could be a christian at all the messiah's atoning death for us is rooted in the jewish sacrificial system as you know um, the priests of the temple uh, slaughtered lambs uh, to take away the sins of god's people And Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. Saint John said of him, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. The Lord's Supper is rooted in the Jewish Passover traditions. Baptism is a Jewish practice, and indeed, the entire New Testament is built on the Hebrew Bible with its prophecies and its promise of a covenant. So that the New Testament without the Old is as impossible as the second floor of a house without the first. The Jewish people to this day remain God's chosen people, and we the Gentiles are grafted on to the promises given through the Jews, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through Moses and the prophets. Today I'd like to begin a study of the letter of James. You'll find it towards the back of the New Testament writing. Of all the books of the Bible, uh, James has had, I think, the the most profound influence on me. It's very short, you know, it's about uh, one, two, three, four, five pages long. Uh, There's five chapters to it. Someplace in the late 70s, uh, for reasons unknown to myself, I read this letter of James every single day, and much of what's in it... uh, crept off the pages of the Bible into my mind and continue to affect me even to this day." James would have been the first of the Christian bishops in the city of Jerusalem. He's often referred to as the brother of the Lord. Now James addresses his uh, letter to the Jews of the diaspora. Uh, this would be to Jews who were living outside of Israel in various parts of the Roman Empire. He opens up his letter with from James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Greetings to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. And then right away he has a kind of a sledgehammer opening. He says, my brothers, you will always have your trials. And, and straight away I want to object. Why do we always have to have our trials? and yet it's just common sense. You know, none of us is perfect and we burden one another very often and life, as Shakespeare says, has a way of rising up and we have to endure the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. So James says, my brothers, you will always have your trials, but when they come, try to treat them as a happy privilege. You understand that your faith is only put to the test to make you patient. But patience, too, is to have its practical results so that you will become fully developed, complete, with nothing missing. Now, James doesn't try to tell us why we always have to have our trials. He simply states it. And somehow or other, we kind of know that it's true. We always have our trials. In an earlier letter from Paul, the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, Paul says the following. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten that encouraging text in which you were addressed as sons? My son, when the Lord corrects you, do not treat it lightly, but do not get discouraged when he reprimands you. For the Lord trains the ones that he loves, and he punishes all those that he acknowledges as his sons. Suffering is part of your training. There it is again. You'll always have your trials. Suffering is part of your training. God is treating you as his sons. Has there ever been any son whose father did not train him? If you were not getting this training, as all of you are, then you would not be sons but bastards. Besides, we have all had our human fathers who punished us, and we respected them for it we ought to be even more willing to submit ourselves to our spiritual father in order to be given life. Our human fathers were thinking of this short life when they punished us and could only do what they thought best. But he does it, he does it all for our own good so that we may share his own holiness. Of course any punishment is most painful at the time and far from pleasant. But later, in those on whom it has been used, it bears fruit in peace and goodness. So hold up your limp arms and steady your trembling knees and smooth out the path you tread. Then the injured limb will not be wrenched. It will grow strong again. Now, it's, it's an awful message, awesome message, and James doesn't apologize for it. He said, suffering is part of our training. I have to admit I've had a great deal of suffering um, in my own life and it's been very painful. You hear me say at the beginning of every program, I'm a recovering sinner. I'm also a recovering alcoholic and a recovering drug addict and I've suffered dreadfully. I've, I was hopelessly addicted to drugs and alcohol for a period of 18 years and I couldn't get away from it. I was like a dog returning to its vomit. And this was a tremendous trial. But out of it has come new life. There are many, many people now who have similar addictions. And by the grace of God, I'm able to help them struggle with their addictions. Some years ago, I was struggling with some suffering in my life. And I said to my mother, why do you think God is permitting this suffering for me? And one of the things she said that has stayed with me to this day, she said, of all my 11 children, she said, you are the most arrogant. Goodness gracious. Uh, so I had to be brought down. Um, God chastises every son and daughter whom he loves. As gold is tested in the fire, so are humble men and women in the furnace of, our, of tribulation. Apparently it's part of our nature to be uppity and to be proud and to be arrogant and suffering suffering uh, humbles us and lets us know the truth that we are in fact creatures of god so does god know does god know what it means to suffer Um, well he certainly does the following little scene tells it all at the end of time millions of people were scattered on a great plain before god's throne most shrank back from the brilliant light before them but some groups near the front talked heatedly not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endure terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a negro boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer? she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that men had been forced to endure in this world? For God leaves a pretty, sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most, a Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child with no arms. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. The decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, Loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved, for suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence on the cross of Calvary. If I I were to highlight a passage of the scripture that has completely changed my life and brought about a tremendous conversion, it's this next from James chapter 1 verse 5 to 8. If if there is any one of you who needs wisdom, he must ask God, who gives to all freely and ungrudgingly, it will be given to him. But he must ask with faith and no trace of doubt, Because a person who has doubts is like the waves thrown up in the sea when the wind drives. That sort of person in two minds, wavering between going different ways, must not expect that the Lord will give him anything. Now, look at it. If there's any one of you who needs wisdom, if you at this moment listening to this program want wisdom, he's saying, God will give it to you if you ask him, and he will give it to you freely and ungrudgingly but he must ask with faith, whatever that is, and no trace of doubt. Now, brothers, years ago I was walking along, and it was during my days of wine and roses, and I was saying over and over again a short prayer, Jesus, I love you, possess me. Jesus, I love you, possess me. Jesus, I love you, possess me. And into my mind came a passage of the scripture that said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And my mind went into a state of rebellion. All of a sudden I found myself saying, I don't believe this rubbish anymore. I mean, we ask and we don't receive. We seek and we don't find. We knock on the door. Not alone is the door not opened, but it seems like somebody puts on the deadbolt. I just don't believe it anymore. Now, it's difficult to uh, wrestle with defying god and because it is god who said to us through jesus ask and you will receive and here am i saying i don't believe this rubbish anymore now to help us the church and the scripture comes to our rescue The church says to us, well, you must ask for what is right, for for the will of God. I'm sure you've all heard that before. It wasn't God's will. And the scripture says, you do not get what you ask for because you do not ask rightly. You ask to indulge your selfish passions. So I started to think in my mind, well, now, supposing you ask for something that is God's will, and you know for certain that it is God's will, then if God doesn't give it to you, he simply isn't there. Having at the time a photographic memory, my mind quickly journeyed back to the first book of Kings. Uh, It's 1 Kings chapter 3, and the following story um, completely changed my whole life. The Lord God appeared in a dream to Solomon during the night. Now Solomon was the son of David and the third king of Israel. God said, ask what you would like me to give you. Okay. And Solomon replied to God, you showed great kindness to your servant David my father when he lived his life before you in fairness and justice and integrity of heart. You have continued this great kindness to him by allowing a son of his to sit on his throne today. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in succession to David my father, but I am a very young man, unskilled in leadership. Your servant finds himself in the midst of this people of yours that you have chosen, a people so many, its numbers cannot be counted or reckoned and then he said to God and this passage completely changed my life give your servant a heart to understand how to discern between good and evil for who could govern this people of yours that is so great and then it says it pleased Almighty God that Solomon should have asked for this and he said to him since you have asked for this the Lord God said and not asked for long life for yourself our riches are the lives of your enemies but have asked for a discerning judgment for yourself here and now i do what you ask i give you a heart so shrewd and so wise as none before you has had and none after you will have what you have not asked i shall give you too such riches and glory as no other king ever had and i will give you a long life if you follow my ways, keeping my laws and commandments, as your father David followed them. Then Solomon awoke. It was a dream. He returned to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of God. He offered holocausts and communion sacrifice and held a banquet for all his servants. Now, what changed my life here was very simple. Solomon asked God for an understanding heart, for wisdom. He didn't ask for the life of his enemies or to win the Florida Lotto or power or control over women. He asked for an understanding heart so that he could know right from wrong. And the very next line in the scripture says, It pleased Almighty God that Solomon should have asked for an understanding heart. Now, since there is, in God, not even the shadow of a change, not even the tiniest change, then if you or I or anybody else uh, were to get down humbly before God and say to God, give me, please, the gift of an understanding heart, the gift of wisdom, it would please God. And if you ask for this gift in a persistent manner, it will be given to you. Now, let me bring you back again to James. Uh, James says, If any man among you wants wisdom, let him ask God for it, but let him ask with faith, whatever that is. And then he tells us what he's talking about when he says faith. He says, faith really is single-mindedness. Because he tells us here, But he must ask with faith and no trace of doubt. Because the person who has doubts... It's like the waves thrown up in the sea when the wind drives. That sort of person in two minds wavering between going different ways must not expect that the Lord will give him anything. So if you want the gift of wisdom ask God for it in a single-minded persistent manner and he will give it to you as surely as the day follows the night. One time Jesus was talking And he said, in a certain town there was an unjust judge who feared neither God nor men. And in the same town there was a widow woman who day after day beat at the judge's door demanding justice and finally the judge said to himself I fear neither God nor man but this widow is driving me crazy I will give her what she wants I will give her justice in the same way if you and I in a persistent manner ask God for the gift of wisdom it will be given. Now I'd like to share with you Solomon's uh, life after he prayed for the gift of wisdom and what happened to me after I prayed for the gift of wisdom. We are again in the book of Kings, first Kings chapter three, verse sixteen to twenty-eight. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. If it please you, my lord, one of the women said, This woman and I live in the same house, and while she was in the house I give birth to a child. Now it happened on the third day after my delivery that this woman also gave birth to a child. We were alone together. There was no one else in the house with us. Just the two of us in the house. Now one night this woman's son died. She overlaid him by mistake in her sleep. And in the middle of the night she got up and took my son from beside me while your servant was asleep. She put him to her breast and put her own dead son to mine. When I got up to suckle my child, there he was, dead. But in the morning, I looked at him carefully, and he was not the child I had born at all. Then the other woman spoke, that is not true, my son is the live one, yours is the dead one. And the first retorted, that is not true, your son is the dead one, mine is the live one. And so they wrangled before the king. This one says, the king observed, my son is the one who is alive, your son is dead. While the other one says, that is not true, Your son is the dead one, mine is the live one. Bring me a sword, said the king. And a sword was brought into the king's presence. Cut the living child in two, the king said, and give half to one, half to the other. At this, the woman who was the mother of the living child addressed the king, for she burned with pity for her son. If it please you, my lord, she said, let them give Let them give her the child, only do not let them think of killing it. But the other said, He shall belong to neither of us. Cut him up. Then the king gave his decision. Give the child to the first woman, he said, and do not kill him. She is his mother. All Israel came to hear of the judgment the king had pronounced and held the king in awe, recognizing that he possessed divine wisdom for dispensing justice. Now, bringing it up to modern times, for myself, I pray in my heart and soul that the judges of our land and the people of our land um, could have a discerning judgment. Because as you know from previous broadcasts, since 1972, we have actively killed 40 million children through abortion. And not to mention the 10 million or so every year that are killed in the womb by the use of contraceptive devices. Wouldn't it be great if we could go back again to uh, having divine wisdom and recognize what we're doing so that this nation could become a great nation again, where everybody would be welcome. Now, for myself, when I prayed for wisdom, I too experienced a profound and great change in my life. Every day I had gotten down on my knees and had said to God, please give me the gift of wisdom like Solomon had of old. And three weeks after I had been praying this, a man walked up to me outside church. I don't know, he might have been an angel. I might have been touched by an angel, who knows. But he was a fat man with glasses. I hadn't seen him before. I haven't seen him since. And he simply said to me, Uh, Father, there is no record in the scripture of a woman betraying Jesus Christ. And then he walked off. And a light came on in my mind. You know, living in the culture that we do, uh, women are sorely abused. I think they are more abused today in this day of liberation than they ever were before. They're exploited left, right, and center. Women are used like paper handkerchiefs and then dumped. They can't even sell tires without introducing women's legs or breasts into the ad. And I don't know why women take it. I really don't know why women take it. Now, raised in this culture, um, you know, we're all affected by it. And you know this, this downgrading of women. Uh, Women are as if they were not people, they were just there to be used for our pleasure. But when this man said to me, there is no record in the New Testament of a woman betraying Christ, having the photographic memory I had at the time, I knew that what he was saying was true. On the night before Jesus died, all the men uh, ran away, but the women stood beneath the cross. The women washed his body and prepared it for burial. The women were the ones who went to the tomb in the early morning to embalm the body of Jesus with mirror and aloes. The women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. They brought the news to the apostles that Christ was risen from the dead. Um, Elizabeth said yes to God and John the Baptist was born, and Mary the New Eve, the crowning glory of all free women, said yes to God and the Christ was born. And so by praying for wisdom, the first thing that was healed inside of me was my attitude towards wom- women. I saw that women, like me, like men, are made in the image and likeness of God. They have equal dignity in the sight of God as I do. The so among the greatest of all God's gifts is the gift of wisdom. And he will give it to anybody who asks for it. He will give it freely and ungrudgingly. But we must ask for it in a single-minded manner. And it will be done for us. Well, thank you for listening to Burning Hearts. Shalom. Faith Fit Radio and the Dice of Orlando presented Burning Hearts with Father Patrick O'Dottery. Thank you for listening. Check out the podcast at faithfitradio.org and tune in next time. May you be blessed with peace and joy.